Spectrum is planning to drop 22 channels, including Corn Cob TV. They're saying by the end of 2022, Corn Cob TV won't be available on your cable menu. That means you won't be able to see some of your favorite Corn Cob TV shows, including Coffin Flop. They're saying they want to drop Corn Cob TV because we showed over 400 naked dead bodies on our show Coffin Flop. If you love Corn Cop TV shows, it's time to tell Spectrum no. They're saying Coffin Flop's not a show. It's just hours and hours of footage of real people falling out of coffins at funerals. There's no explanation, just body after body busting out of shit wood and hitting pavement. They're saying it's impossible that that many dead bodies are falling out of coffins every day. And it's impossible that one out of every five bummer nude. I don't know what to tell you, bud. We're just shooting funerals and showing the ones where the bodies fly out. Hello, and welcome to Cut to Black, a podcast about how we experience television. My name is Sean T. Collins. I'm a television critic, and I'm the author of the book Pain Don't Hurt, Meditations on Roadhouse. And joining me is my illustrious co-host. Gretchen Felker Martin, film critic and horror author. My first novel, Manhunt comes out February 22nd, 2022. Today we'll be talking about a little thing called Coffin Flop, a sketch from the premiere episode of the second season of Tim Robinson's sketch comedy show on Netflix, I Think You Should Leave. This is probably the fucking hardest that I've laughed at anything in a year. (laughs) I, I saw this reference and I, it just slipped out of my mind. You know, I I hadn't ever seen the show. I wasn't particularly interested because I'm not really a comedy person. And then on a whim, weeks later, I turned it on while I was working and I I wound up getting absolutely nothing done and watching the series start to finish. And when I got to Coffin Flops, I laughed so hard that I was in physical pain and I could taste bile. (laughs) (laughs) That's always a good sign. I mean, you can taste bile all the time. That's true. So, but this was still a special bile. Right. This was my bile. Right. Not, you know, I hadn't like drunk it. <laughs> um, Coffin Flop is such an incredible piece of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Like at a technical level, you're talking about a highly complex series of stunts filmed very tightly on a small budget for a comedy you've got these crazy sets and props and it's all intercut with Tim Robinson giving this bizarre monologue that scales up and up and up in intensity until he's threatening to kill the people. <laughs> and, uh, what is, what's the it's spectrum, which is an spectrum. actual cable company spectrum yep. TV. Yes. Yep. He's threatening to kill the people at spectrum TV. One thing that really jumped out at me about Coffin Flop is that the makeup on Tim Robinson is absolutely fucking incredible. Yes. I noticed that too. Just now, as I was preparing for the podcast, I just had yeah. it on in the background and I saw, it, I was like, wow, they really made him up to look a certain specific kind of weird. He looks like greasy expired meat. Yep. yep. <laughs> he just looks so unwell. You can see, like, his shaving rash. Like, it's really... Yeah, you can, it's it's impressive. He's, he's, he's got these sunken, waxy eye sockets. Yep. It's, it takes some, some guts to get up there and make yourself look as unflattering as possible. I realize that's kind of a thing for comedy, but... Yeah, but it, it doesn't make it less true, you yeah. know? Like, going on television in front of potentially millions of people and making yourself look like shit is still tough i don't know that i could do it yep and it's effectively the premise of the entire show like you know i think you should leave is such a good title for the show which i like you came to it late after the second season premiered because you know i'd heard about it and you'd seen the the hot dog man all over the place on twitter the meme of you know we're all looking for the guy who did this yeah and um the the car focus group guy you know the old man (laughs) <laughs> who doesn't want a steering wheel to f- to whiff off while he's driving or whatever. Um, 
And and I was just like, oh, okay, it's another viral show that everyone loves. It's like fucking Succession. I don't give a shit. Right. Um. But finally, friend of friend of the podcast, Matthew Perpetua, was like, you know, you really should watch it. Like, what's it, you can watch the entire series in three hours. So what's the harm? You know, I mean, and right. and that kind of made it click for me because like, oh, it's like watching Tim and Eric. You know, you watch an episode if you like it, you watch another. You still haven't reached a half an hour's worth of television time. So. And Tim and Eric is such a good point of comparison because it's doing that same kind of like middle American grotesquery. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very much like focused on suburban aesthetics and this kind of like repugnant series of every men. Yeah. I mean, not for nothing is Tim Heidecker a recurring cast member on the show. Right. Absolutely. And this this does feel it has like a there's an on cinema quality to this character that Tim is Tim Robinson excuse me is playing in the sketch who you know he gets up and he starts giving the spiel about how Spectrum TV is threatening to take 22 channels off the air including Corn Cob TV which is his network as it eventually becomes apparent and you know at first I've seen these commercials when there's a dispute between uh you know a, a a big media conglomerate and a cable company or a satellite company, you know, they do these little commercials, tell spectrum no or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, as it goes, he gets angrier and angrier defending something that's more and more ridiculous, which is basically the on cinema model to a T. Yeah. And it's just so impressive how they incorporate these very distinct filming styles of the way the, the, the ad portion of it looks. And then the way the cutaways to the actual show cough and flop, which is nothing yeah. more or less than a stationary camera capturing dead bodies flying out of exploding coffins. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a pitch perfect reality television aesthetic. Yes. Um, with the, you know, the shaky zoom and everything. And then you cut back to what looks like the, the talking segments of an infomercial. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's these two distinct, again, very like middle American Joe, Everyman aesthetics, everything that is on, I think you should leave feels like it comes from a mall. Yeah, that's true. There's a mall sequence in this episode where he's doing the prank show thing is in this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even want to be around anymore. <laughs> that is the most, I'm sorry. This is just very brief aside that quote. I don't need, I don't want to be around anymore. When I've felt suicidal, that is how I felt. Yeah. That's that, called, that that's exact called line. Passive ideation. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, that's a little fun tidbit for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Unsurprisingly, my suicidal ideation is much more graphic. You don't say. <laughs> Um, but that's just because I'm cool and sexy. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm the, I'm the bad girl here. (laughs) The original bad girl of suicidal ideation. (laughs) Yes. What did you call me and Julia that one time? The Statler and Waldorf of clinical depression. (laughs) That sounds about right. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, so it, it takes this very accessible set of aesthetics and draws you in. And this is, you know, this is a basic feature of sketch comedy. You present something recognizable and then you slowly expose it as more and more ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the the reality television that's popular right now, which tries to show people falling in love or wearing ridiculous masks and getting to know each other and just like all this this sort of human banality wrapped in a a thin weird skin of excitement it it doesn't feel very far off no not at all not at all this seems like something like one degree removed from reality yeah i mean i i don't actually have cable you know i watch things ad hoc through various streaming services and screener copies that i get and stuff like that but i do i'm exposed to cable television once in a while uh, or even just reading about what's going on on the broadcast networks. And there is a show called Crime Scene Kitchen, 
where host Joel McHale from Community presides over contestants who try to recreate meals based on what they think they must be from the scraps left behind in the kitchen oh where the meal God. was prepared. And I just, <laughs> how is this real? How is this real? I mean, Sean, for years, years now, so long that it has spawned multiple viral memes, there has been a show called Wife Swap. That's very true. Which is totally indistinguishable from a, a Tim and Eric or I think you should leave gag. A lot of it is. Like, a lot yeah. of it is just, it strains credulity. You just wonder what's, the Masked Singer is very weird. Yeah. It's very weird. Yeah. And Coffin Flop obviously tackles a taboo that it is not very lucrative to tackle on on mainstream television, which is death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the rapidity with which they cut between coffins or people falling out of coffins <laughs> is it's there's a point in the middle of the video where it becomes breakneck. Yeah. Um. And the decision to show that one out of every five bodies is nude. (laughs) My favorite part of that is that he says that Spectrum's going to take them off the air because they showed over 400 nude dead bodies on their show Coffin Flop. And if if one out of every five dead bodies is nude, that means they've shown at least 2,000 dead bodies. Falling out of broken coffins on their show, Coffin Flop. 2,000. It's incredible. And you have to wonder, like, at no point is there any suggestion that there's anything more to this show than this. Right, right. And in fact, it's it's pretty explicitly stated that this is all the show is, is filming funerals. And then they, they cut together footage from the ones where the body flies out of the coffin. <laughs> yeah, he says there's no explanation. Right, we're not doing anything. Uh, <laughs> I and, didn't do know. fucking shit. I didn't rig shit. And, uh, you know, of course you can decide for yourself whether or not to take him seriously. Right. But this is the whole show. There's no connective tissue to it. It's just an endless clip show of bodies falling out of coffins, apparently, through freak accidents. Mm-hmm. And they're being taken off the air because of repeated nudity and presumably for obscenity (laughs) (laughs) oh the the prop work is really incredible here the the fake coffin bottoms which are made out of scored balsa wood and are lined with hamster bedding so that like there's a big you know poof of like what looks like sawdust Mm-hmm. when the body falls out <laughs> and apparently apparently how they do it is there are rails inside the coffins so that the stunt actor is gripping the rails and holding themselves above the balsa wood and then when it comes time for them to fall they just let go and they just drop through yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is a really technically complicated stunt. Especially because the performer obviously can't see out of the coffin. Right. <laughs> like, just just imagine trying to solve this logistical problem as the prop and stunt coordinator. It really is something. I mean, ha- I was in a sketch comedy group in college. And, you know, half the challenge of being in that group was, okay, you have an idea. Is there any way that this is feasible right. you know, to make with no budget and put on in like a little black box theater or whatever? Right. You know, can, and, can, and just physically and logistically, this is pretty much at the edge of what any small studio can do because there's so many moving pieces to it. You need very small light stuntmen. You need very strong pallbearers because the, the camera needs a clear shot of the coffin for it to the joke to play so you can't have the full number of pallbearers it's just such an incredibly complex and delicate setup yeah there's there's it has to be people who can take a blind fall while reliably not injuring themselves 
which is a scary I, I think about it all the time because as you know i'm a big wrestling fan and just half of a wrestling match is people land just flying through the air and landing flat on their back Oof. expecting that nothing will happen to them that the person they're performing with is going to look out for their safety and that they can look out for their own safety and take a flat right. back bump and it's like i couldn't do that once you know oh god no like i i can't i can't do a trust fall i can't lean i can't even lean back and fall on a sofa or like a beanbag chair i'm too afraid i can't make that you get to that point where the balance is about to tip over and i can't do it so i mean i guess these are stunt people and that's their that's their gig but it doesn't make it any less impressive you know it is incredibly impressive. I feel like physical comedy in visual media has such a long history. I mean, stretching all the way back to before Chaplin and to see it done really at, at, uh, at such a high level and for such a fucking stupid conceit <laughs> is such a joy. Yeah, it really is. I just love, I love to see real, I guess what I'm driving at with this whole tangent is that most comedy is so much lazier than this. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, every part of this has so much attention lavished on it. Like I was saying earlier about, about his makeup that makes him look like this sweaty, greasy wreck of a man who has, has thrown himself on television in a last ditch effort to save his insane channel. There's just so much work put in and it, it really pays off. Yeah. I think that I think about that a lot as I watch the show and I think the casting is really strong because obviously there are comedians on it, you know, all the time, like right. famous comedians, but there's also just a lot of regular actors, like often actors of like a certain age or they're casting it like it's an actual show. Yeah. What I'm trying to say. Like it's not just cameos and it's not even what Tim and Eric did and, and casting like very strange people. Like they're, they, they're trying to make the world around Tim Robinson and whatever he's doing as convincing as possible. Yes. So that, so that what he does stands out as being, you know, uniquely unpleasant and weird. Right. I don't think it would work if it was like, if the whole thing was as, as strange as a, a Tim and Eric show, you know, right. I, I, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a bedtime stories sketch where right. everyone looks like some sort of bizarre toad who has escaped from like a, a cursed dungeon under someone's <laughs> house. Right. Yeah. You know, everyone, but everyone, but Tim would not look out of place on network television for the most part. Mm-hmm. The irony being that Tim has experience on network television. He was briefly on Saturday Night Live. Right. And wrote, wrote for them longer than he was starring on it, but yeah. But it's such a sort of, it's such a rich premise to take this one guy who is so skilled at projecting abrasive, cringy loathsomeness and just drop him into the middle of this really beautifully curated, very, very aggressively normal world. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the sketch where he plays a guest at the house of a new mother and he starts to project increasingly crazy things onto the baby. Right. You know, like I'm worried the baby thinks people can't change. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of sketches that are set in dinner parties like that and you know in someone's suburban house or at obviously there's a ton of sketches set in offices and meeting rooms and things like that yeah it's all it's all tied back into what i was talking about earlier about this sort of middle american aesthetic it's sort of blandly corporate a lot of the mm -hmm. time it's nebulously sort of lower to average middle class. There's, there's very few distinct elements to the set dressing in a way that really works. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're really, you know, they get, they get things like um, outdoor outlet malls 
like where the sketch where he gets the extremely complicated pattern shirt at Dan flashes, um, you know, that the shops at the Creek, like I've, I've been to a place like that, you know, in an excerpt. Absolutely. And gosh, the, um, the driver's ed sketch, uh, with Patty Harrison, you know, like she is so good at playing like this sort of really brittle upper middle class type of person. And, so she's note perfect in it as someone who's having like a, a, a meltdown while behind the wheel because she's upset about something at work. And then the, 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 the way the high school students are cast, the way the high school classroom is set up, the way Tim behaves as the, I mean, Tim nails the cadence of a, of a high school teacher so well that I'm like, he must be, is he married to a teacher? Like my ex is, my ex is a teacher, a middle school teacher. And I'm like, I'm not trying to read her for filth or anything. I'm not, but like, she, like, there's just a certain way that people talk for classes when they're a teacher that they just absolutely nail here, and uh, it's it's again and again they create these, as you say, like Middle American aesthetics, really faithfully, which is sort of what the the weird characters can then sort of bounce off of. Yeah. Something else that I've noticed, and this is hardly a unique comedic conceit, but there's so many sketches on I Think You Should Leave that incorporate something really, really solemn and then mine it for the most tangential, upsetting, irritating insanity possible. Coffin Flop is probably the best known of those because it's the funniest, but there's also the sketch with the guy who won't stop honking because he's horny. (laughs) Yeah. Connor O'Malley. Yeah. 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 And he winds up at that funeral where Tim sings that, that really weirdly inappropriate pop song about his dead mom. A, A perfect Taylor Swift pastiche. Yes. That he sings at a funeral. Oh. Yes. And then there's also the Bob Odenkirk sketch set at the diner where mm-hmm. the guy who is there with his little daughter tries to rope Bob Odenkirk into shoring up a lie that he tells her. And Bob Odenkirk's social condition is that the guy has to endorse his increasingly insane lies about himself. And then he starts to tell this story about his fictional wife having cancer. <laughs> and it gets like really maudlin and dark. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's that part where he he has the dad, he, like forces him to confirm, but she's going to get better. <laughs> <laughs> she's kind of like, yeah, like he's talking, he's like, he's trying to, Tim's character is trying to reassure Odenkirk's character that like, yeah, she's going to get better. <laughs> yes. We like, believe you, this. You have to to soothe this man because of the lies that he made up. Mm -hmm. But you're taking all these situations where mortality is really close and you're digging hard into absurdity. Yeah. And obviously that is well-trod territory. I mean, you need look no farther than AJ Soprano to be told that ultimately life ends in death and is thus absurd. <laughs> yeah. It's like what Mel Brooks used to say, you know, tragedy is when I get a paper cut or whatever it is. And comedy is when you fall in a manhole and die. Right. Exactly. There. <laughs> I guess I, I don't mean to be trite in saying this, but at this moment when we're all surrounded by death constantly, it feels really, really good to laugh hysterically at it. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think maybe my single favorite sketch from I Think You Should Leave, certainly the one that, let's say, just occurs to me the most when I'm trying to fall asleep and I just wind up giggling in bed with my eyes closed. This has happened many times. Is in the same episode with Coffin Flop, uh, it's the ghost tour sketch. Oh my God. Tim's character goes on a tour of like a haunted mansion or whatever, you know, and there's a docent who walks them through it. And all of his questions are just incredibly obscene because 
he seizes on the idea that this is the adult tour where they can say wherever the hell, whatever the hell we want, says the, the tour guide or whatever. And he's just like, so he can talk about horse cocks and big, big fat loads of cum or whatever. Yeah. And there's a moment after he gets chewed out by the leader of the tour for, you know, disrupting it and ruining it for everybody. You know, the next time the tour guy has any questions, like he raises his hand and he's, he's crying. Tim is, he's like, not trying to be funny. Not trying to get a laugh. Not trying to make anyone have the worst day at their job. But. And like when he says the but, I fucking lost my goddamn mind. He's like, he's so upset. This has been so difficult for him emotionally. To to talk about the profane things that these ghosts may or may not do. And he's just like, he's compelled to keep going. Like, he cannot not probe at this intersection of mortality and obscenity. And it does feel like kind of a stand-in for the whole show's approach in a way. Yeah. That butt kills me every time. God oh, damn it. God, God damn it. It's so fucking funny. It's like, this is an ordeal for him. Yes. He has only one response to this question, and he's undergoing some unbearable compulsion to continue voicing it. It's amazing. And then you see at the end of the sketch, you, you meet his mother who has a dashboard full of religious figurines and is like a kindly little old lady. And she's like, make any friends? Not really. <laughs> and so you can, you can kind of see now why he had this compulsion to say all this outrageously obscene shit. It's because right. of his life at home, you know, with his old religious mother or whatever. It's like almost like a carry situation. Right, the the uh, Norman Bates effect. Yep, yep, yep. I think you should leave certainly delves into the aesthetics of cable and local access television a lot less frequently than Tim and Eric's oeuvre does. What do you think is so relevant about that kind of thing? to modern comedy that it that it just continuously crops up in all of the things that I would consider the best and most insightful comedy out there. I think it's kind of what we discussed earlier. And I think it's a combination of the stuff's ubiquity and it's absurdity. Like it's everywhere you go. You know, it's 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 just background noise everywhere. And right, it's, it's the shit that plays on the TVs at Chili's. Yeah, and so much of it is so bizarre, and you just don't you don't think about it because you're used to it. You know, like I, recently, I was at a hotel uh, with my kids, and we had cable on a lot. You know, while we we're in the hotel room. And the commercials are all so annoying. Like, obviously, I'm watching I'm watching Nickelodeon and I'm watching the Cartoon Network and I'm watching the Disney Channel with these kids because they're the kids' channels. And you get a lot of the same commercials over and over again, so you get sick of them. But they're all so many of the commercials are so annoying, and they're annoying in a way that a child can identify on upon one single viewing. And they're getting these commercials three times an hour, every hour on three different channels. And so it's all, it's concussive almost how stupid and annoying they are. Like there's this, I, I learned how to do this little dance from a Grubhub commercial where their little CGI animated characters are so excited about the food that they ordered from Grubhub that they do this little dance. And it's horrifying to watch me do this dance. No one, no human should do it, you know? And it's like, the commercial, uh, you know, based on what my kids have unearthed has become a meme, you know, for like YouTube poop and shit like that. It's just so ugly and annoying and stupid. It's stupid. That's ultimately what it is. It's ultimately stupid. Like yes. Randall flag. It's just bottom line. It's dumb. And, but it's, it's everywhere. And, and you know, the, the stupidity is the point. Yes. I, I'm reminded of, uh, the Don Draper line, if you can get into the customer's head, your ad can run all day for free. Yeah. 
and the the violent and it is violent it is aggressive and invasive stupidity of television is so under discussed when we talk about like what television can do to the human mind mm-hmm. and i would say that probably all of the most damaging things that you could lay at TV's doorstep come from aggressive, repeated stupidity. There's commercials, there's a Fox news and cable news in general is gruelingly stressful. I, I mean, I had not seen it in probably a decade and then the night of the 2016 election, I, I turned it on and it was unbearable. It's like it wants to give you an aneurysm. Yeah. And I think to, to a certain extent, in a certain way, it does. It would like to break you until you can't look away from it. Because the sense of impending crisis is so great. It's awful. And it's it makes you stupider. It does make you stupider. I really do, you know, I don't want to sound like the, the, I just picked up at a, a, you know, from a library's used book sale, uh, book written in 19, I want to say 81 or 82 about the history of television, which by then was 40 years old. And it went season by season. It's amazingly detailed. I can't wait to dig into this thing. And I think it's called watching TV. And one thing that it reminded me of as I was flipping through it is the speech that uh, JFK's FCC chairman, a guy named Newton and Minow, gave in 1961 called Television of the Public Interest, where he declared commercial television programming a vast wasteland. He's not wrong. No. And obviously on this show, we discuss really good TV for the most part, and or so far exclusively. And two decades of prestige television, or two decades plus now, since The Sopranos debuted, Good TV is new. Yeah, it pretty much is. It really is. I mean, there there were boom periods. Like, I used to do a feature for Rolling Stone. Uh, not used to. I did it once, I think, the, where I broke down the best ever Emmy Award category slates. Like, where it was just a murderer's row of whatever it was. If it was a drama, comedy, actor, actress, supporting actress, supporting actress, etc. Because there, there were just years where just, like, every single one was a winner, and you're like, well, that's an amazing time period for television. And in the 1970s, for example, you had a lot of strong comedies. You had Norman Lear stuff, you know, for example. And then when you look at the best drama stuff, it's like the Waltons, Mannix, like, you know, like cop shows, detective shows, and the Waltons is basically what you had. And it, it's shit. It's fucking shit. Yeah. And you know, obviously there are some things that are good or at least good things came from it. You know, David right, Chase wrote for the Rockford Files or whatever. You can, like, you can dig up the odd I, Claudius and, and whatnot. Yeah, but it was fucking, you know, and, and that was a time period where comedy was strong and pushing boundaries in a way that drama was just, it was not even close to doing, not even interested in playing the same game, you know? And, the, and, and then, you know, these things, the fortunes of the different kinds of genres rise and fall or whatever. But a lot of it is just shit. It's just shit. Like, in the 90s, there were three years in a row where the best comedy shows and the best drama shows were identical. Uh. I think for both categories. There may have, and, you know, the drama ones were like, there were two, I swear to God, there were two cop shows set in New York. Law and Order and NYPD Blue. There were two hospital shows set in Chicago, ER and Chicago Hope. And then there was like the X-Files or whatever, you know? And it's like, there was no, like, I remember watching a bit of all of those shows when I was a kid and they were good, you know? But it's like, that's how narrow the range was. Two cop shows set in New York, two hospital shows set in Chicago, for three fucking years, that was all that anyone had to nominate. Like, and even was, those five shows, not their best episodes, could never go toe to toe with the slimmest things that, like Boardwalk Empire or The Sopranos, has to offer. Yeah, I would agree with you there. I really would. 
it's it's just a different universe in terms of what anyone is even interested in trying. Really Perfect. not until Twin Peaks is there a mainstream sensation that is is good. Yeah. You know, I mean there's 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 some anti you know, Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere and so on and so forth. Right. But, there's the prisoner, but like these are these course. are oddities. Twin yeah. Peaks leads immediately into a television renaissance. Right, right. And it took a few years to get there, but I mean there's there's basically no show that we will talk about that was not directly influenced or even inspired by Twin Peaks. It just yeah, it absolutely. made the medium. It made the medium. You really you could not have the Sopranos on a symbolic level without Twin Peaks. And to bring us just, just to fully round the horseshoe here, I think Twin Peaks has been enormously influential on sketch comedy. Like I think you should leave and Tim and Eric. Oh, absolutely. Because first, first you have the purposefully hokey visual effects. This not hokey is the wrong word. It's intentionally artificial. Mm-hmm. you're not trying to fool the viewer. You're trying to show them something that they don't fully understand or feel put off by because it is slightly wrong. Right. The backwards moving entities in the black lodge, things like that. And these are just like sewn through the visual and thematic language of things. Like, I think you should leave like, I mean, we were talking earlier about the, 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 I don't even want to be around anymore sketch when he's in this horrible, unbelievable latex costume mm-hmm. and he, he looks humanish from a distance, but the effect is clearly supposed to be disturbing to the yeah. viewer, even though the, the fictional viewer, it is presupposed is supposed to find it funny. I think a lot of good comedy will sort of brush against horror aesthetics at some point. You Absolutely. Know? Speaking of which, like the sketch that you brought up earlier, where he is convinced that the baby thinks he's still a piece of shit like he used to be and that people can't change. That sketch ends with a direct visual quote from under the skin with yes, the baby on the beach. Yes, it it's does. Like, that's 100% what it is. There's no question in my mind. No question in my mind. You okay. cannot get that specific the way the baby is lit on the, on the, on the shore of the ocean. Like that's from under the skin. Which I just watched again the other night. Um, I actually showed it to a bunch of people who had never seen it as, as part of my viewing series that I do. Gosh, that scene is as close as anything has ever come to me or for me to unwatchability. Yep. I, I, just break down every single time. It's so awful. I've only seen that movie one time. Oh my God, Sean. I, I, I don't, I don't know that. I, I mean, I've memorized it, you know, it seared itself into my brain, but I, I, I've been afraid to go back because that scene is so viscerally. I've never been that viscerally upset by a scene in any movie. Yeah. I was screaming at the screen. I was like, I was just screaming the word no over and over again at the screen. Yeah. It really was. That's a that's a motherfucker. Yeah, that that specific sketch, the sloppy steak sketch, mm-hmm. is so shot through with weird horror stuff. I mean, if you set the actual the, the titular sloppy steak sequence next to the scenes of Black Lodge spirits eating Garmin Bazia, the creamed corn, <sighs> they would not look out of place beside each other. No, they really wouldn't. They're both bizarre looking people just ripping into food that looks utterly repulsive Mm -hmm. in this sort of heightened reality, you know, in, in his memory, it's the the fast moving jerky camera. But I, I really think there is this tremendous crossover, not just between horror and comedy, but between twin peaks and this, this brand of modern horror yeah, I mean, when you think about direct antecedents for coffin flop, I mean, Leland Palmer jumped onto the coffin of his dead daughter like that. That's very true. It's impossible to know. I mean, to know how to feel when you watch that scene from Twin Peaks, like it's it's so 
you laugh maybe nervously because it is it's funny it's melodramatic but it's also yeah it's like it's like this huge melodramatic gesture and it's also really sad and fucked up for what it and and it's it it, it suggests a pretty severe mental illness or just an, a complete inability to cope yeah. on Leland's part but it's also funny like yeah. it's a pratfall it, it is and I think, obviously, that has a lot in common with Cough and Flop, where half the comedy isn't just the bodies falling out of the coffins, it's the disruption that it causes at the various funerals, where you hear people, you know, you, you, you hear people say, oh, Jesus, or like, come on, or, or you watch people leap over a twirling, rolling, new dead body as That's it rolls downhill. <laughs> yeah, there's a... Those extras who are, are mostly out of focus and are not not the the point of any shot are really fucking putting the work in. Yeah. Just incredible. The other thing is that Twin Peaks is concerned with wholesome Americana and the aesthetics of the the suburban world in the same way that, that these comedies are. And for Lynch, that's a chance to peel the skin back and show that that is an illusion, ironically woven by things like television. And underneath are complex people who do not fit easily into any kind of hierarchy. Yeah, you had that pastiche in the original, I guess it's mainly in season one, in uh invitation to love the soap opera that they watch yep and he's making very explicit that this is we're riffing on television like it's a television show that's about television in a way not necessarily explicitly you know it's not a it's not a workplace thing about it's not like the mary uh, the dick van dyke show excuse me where he's a television writer or anything like that right But, but it's in conversation with television as a medium as it existed at that moment yeah exactly and it's not a pleasant conversation to have, really. No, know? it's not. And I don't think st- uh, this may go without saying, but streaming has not saved television. Has not saved. Has not made television less of a vast wasteland. If you know anything, I mean? it has simply made it harder to navigate and worse. Yeah, I don't think th- th- there's not a big like. You know, I mean, I've written about this in the past, but like, what great material has Netflix really created? What's great? Well, I mean, maybe we can say at this point, I think you should leave. Is yeah, I think you, that I think you should leave is is some of the best comedy of the decade. Yeah, and that's that's homegrown by American Netflix, you know. But short of that, like the the shows that I would revert to if I'm trying to make an argument in Netflix's defense are Sabura, which is Italian. And dark, which is German. Like I don't, I have yet to watch a North American Netflix show that I thought could hold a candle to really much of anything. Honestly, you know, like there are moments in Narcos that I like. I like Wagner Mura's performance as Pablo Escobar a whole lot. Uh, that's it. Yeah, it's a leaky ship. Yep, that's it. I think. All in all, Netflix has, I mean, Netflix is one of these venture capital funded companies that is so colossally overvaluated. Is Netflix making money? Not really. But their valuation is so high that they can borrow against it and that attracts more capital, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they do this with this algorithm driven model where almost everything they produce is basically because a machine said it should exist. Mm-hmm. It's the same impetus that, that leads you to things like the, the infamous Johnny, Johnny eating candy, telling lies, whatever bizarre YouTube thing where it's, it's just purely algorithm driven content in the, the truest sense of the word. Yeah, I remember when that uh, 
that feature on that show Maniac came out, and which was directed by Kari Fukunaga, who did the first season of True Detective. And he literally said, like, well, the algorithm determined this and that. And people didn't want to he- people did not want to hear that. Like, because it seems it seems so over the top that you you don't want to believe it. You know, like it's just like, no, no, that can't be. In fact, if any critic of Netflix had said it, known the people who defend corporations that have delivered pleasant sensations to them would have rejected it out of hand. Absolutely. But because it, but because it was a guy who actually made a fucking show for this fucking network or the streaming service, excuse me, like people had to listen and they didn't want to hear it because it's a horrifying thing to hear. It is. You know, it again, it brings me back to Don Draper when in season four, Sterling Cooper Draper Price hires these psychological consultants and he, they hold a focus group and the doctor reports back to him that they should use this very staid old fashioned campaign because that's what the focus group produced. And he says, well, a new idea is something they haven't thought of yet. It won't show up. Give me a year and then do it again. And that's essentially the dynamic that you get with things like Netflix. They are adjusting only for the things that they already know people want, which makes it a, a narrowing circle by definition. You can only give people things that they've already had which is yeah. just a, an impoverished, indefensible way to make art. I think that's a big reason why I find so little of it appealing. Like, why am I going to watch The Witcher? Good Why Lord. would I watch The Witcher? Why? I, I watched <laughs> the half of the first episode and I was... It's just... It's transparent that nobody fucking gave a damn. It's I don't nothing. get it. I don't get it. I have ga- I have Game of Thrones. I have The Lord of the Rings. I have I can go back and watch Conan the Barbarian or the fucking Beastmaster. Like, w- what am I doing here? Like, I here's what you like. Here's more of what you already like. And yeah, it's, it's and it's bad because it exists solely to pour into that shoot. Yep. And you know, there's a reason why people keep talking about a small handful of prestige TV shows and not the bajillion knockoffs that were made of any of them, you know, cause like you had the good thing once and maybe people will watch the knockoffs and maybe they won't. Maybe it's more digestible version of the original. So people will digest it. I, I don't know. But like w- when you have a breaking bad, for example, why would you watch a low winter sun, which was a show that existed? Yes. Yes, you it know? was. Um, you wouldn't. The answer is you. You don't. Right. You know, and that's not always the case. But it's weird that this has become a business model for so many places. Like Disney Plus is a great example of that. Like, oh man, Disney Plus is literally like, well, if you like this, here's more of it. Here's more Star Wars. Here's more Marvel. Right. It, it's just endless fucking vomiting. Yeah. And it's not great, folks. It's not great. It's not great, Bob. <laughs> well for a television podcast we sure went off on why television sucks yeah i guess we kind of did but that's that is the point of the sketch yes it is it is it is 100 percent what they are driving at is that television is an incomprehensible hell that exists for no earthly reason yeah like, cause that's the thing. A How to- combination of morbid curiosity and voyeurism and just pure boredom and, and lack of attention. Yep. Oh, boredom. I'm so glad you said that because this has got to be a boring show to watch. Like if you're actually sitting down to watch coffin flop and you're watching 2000 examples minimum, of this exact same thing happening over and over, over again. And over and over. That's fucking dull. Even if it is bodies flying out of shit wood and hitting the pavement, you know? Like it's 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 boring. 
it's a boring thing to like. It's pretty much the definition of tedium. Yes, because the first time you see it, you've seen it. You've seen one, you've seen them all, and that's the that's the joke of the sketch because they keep showing it to you. Yes, you know, and, and you're just like connective tissue is what makes the sketch work. Yeah, and it's so interesting because there's probably ten times as much of it as there is of the actual coffin flopping, mm-hmm. um, conservatively. Yeah, and that that is also the meat of modern streaming and, and modern mainstream television is just some weird fucking guy telling you shit over and over and over. I mean, God, my roommate watches a fair amount of reality TV and sometimes I'll, I'll pop in and have my coffee and watch with her. And the amount of repetition that occurs on them is, is stunning. Mm-hmm they're constantly showing you footage that they just showed you just, just an endless struggle to pad out the runtime. And I, I've been watching uh, the great British baking show with my daughter. Cause we just enjoy the kind of calming rhythm of baking competitions and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and watching which kindly inbred English person's going to win, whatever, you know, yeah. it's, it's fun. Yeah. Um, that was, that was probably the one I enjoyed the most when right. my but it, was watching it. I remember vividly contestants in one, you know, in some episode, in some round, like one of them said, like, I can hear the music that they will be playing while this happens. You know? And it's like, man, because it is, it's repetitive. It's repetitive. Like, and in that case, you know, it's like, it's a competition show. And to a certain extent, like competitions are repetitive. It's like baseball games. You've seen, you know, like they base, whatever sports, it's the same basic thing over and over again, you know, right, but it was just, I remember it being really striking, like this, this contestant on this show being able to hear in their, in their mind, what will be playing at that moment as they show them talking about what will be playing in that moment. And that's know? ultimately, that's what coffin flops is, is it's just zooming in as close as you could possibly imagine on one island in this vast archipelago of nonsense. There's nothing, this noise. And when you look at it closely, it's even more incoherent. It, it is a kind of horror. Yeah. I feel like we should end there. I was going to say that's a happy note to end on. So let's do it. Yeah. You've been listening to Cut to Black, a podcast about the ways in which we experience television. We would love it if you saw your way to giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, and I hope you tune in next time. Take care, everybody. Good night. Good night.